What's up, guys? JD here, and on today's show, I am talking with David Louie, CEO and new co-owner of Kit and Ace. That's right. David bought a company, and he is here to talk about it, what the deal was like, why he bought the company, how he's going to grow it and make it 10 times better. I think you guys are really going to love this episode if you are into buying and building businesses, and of course you are because you're here on making it. All right, before we get to it, though, I've got to give you some names because David and I mentioned a bunch of first names. We drop them in conversation because we know them, but I want to make sure that you know who we're talking about. So when we talk about George, we're talking about George Sogas, who is the former chief executive officer of Kit and Ace, the guy that sold the company to David. When we talk about Joe Mimran and Frank Rochetti, we're talking about retail rock stars. Joe Mimran, of course, was on my podcast before. Frank is Joe's business partner, and they are all partners with David in the deal. And finally, we're talking about Shannon Wilson and Chip Wilson. Chip, of course, the founder of Lululemon, very well known. And Shannon is the founder originally of Kit and Ace. All right, now you know who we're talking about. And frankly, even if you don't know any of those names, it doesn't matter because we are here to talk to David Louie. Let's do it right now. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. So you just did something really big. You were uh, part of buying this company, this big retail brand. Why don't you just tell us the story? How did you buy Kit and Ace? Wow. It's a loaded question. I've tried to... It's been a really interesting journey. You know, Kit and Ace, I've had my eye on the brand since it started about nine years ago. And who didn't? Right. Everyone watched how it built with the family and how it scaled the business quite quickly. And uh, I've been an admirer of the brand. And at that time, I believe it was the hottest place to be. And uh, it's kind of a, a self fulfillment because you, know, you kind of think about, you look at brands and try to aspire or try to think about what they're going through and how they're building the business. You, you want to be a part of it. So today, being here and only a part of Kidney's, is uh, it's a bit of a dream come true in a way. So did you have a relationship? I mean, the, the founder, at least on Google, the, the founder is Shannon Wilson. And I'm sure that you know, there's an, an executive team. Did you have a relationship prior or did you make a relationship once the company was founded? Yeah, I had a very close relationship with uh, George, who was this, uh, the CEO who bought the business from Chip and the family, Shannon and JJ. And a uh, really good relationship with George. And uh, just this happened over a coffee in late October of 22. And the conversation just came up about potentially, I was looking at investments in other businesses and getting involved with other retail businesses. And the conversation just came up and it presented an opportunity. So George and I explored it. And uh, over the holidays and then coming back from the holidays, we just wrapped up the conversations even further and very excited to, to embark on it. Were they looking to sell prior? Like, was it an active sale discussion or was it more of just, hey, if you're interested, maybe we'll do it? Yeah, it was a, hey, you know, if you're interested, let's talk. I think, you know, George is an entrepreneur as well. He's looking to scale and build. And of course, he has a great relationship with Chip and he's been a great mentor of George. But yeah, just looking for other advice on how to. How strategic partners advice to grow the business, and 
he and I are great friends and that all started uh, the conversation about the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes the best business stories and the best business deals are done between people that have relationships because that eases into the conversation that would otherwise take a long time to get into. Right. So you start having this conversation and what did you like about the business? So obviously you were an outsider. You didn't have inside information to that stuff at that point. What did you like about the business as an outsider? And then my next question is going to be, what did you like better or maybe worse about the business once you got in? Well, I really like the business model. I think George has done a great job in uh, taking it in a different direction from technical casual from where it started from, but really keeping with the DNA of this athleisure for movement, like for the commuter. And quite frankly, I think it was hitting a very nice sweet spot in the marketplace where between COVID, he went through a very difficult time with COVID as well, but, you know, consumer shifts and, and looking at athleisure and comfort and something that enhances their lifestyle. And that was a big attraction for me as, as a brand because I was looking at this other brand and then my focus completely shifted to kidneys because I love what George was doing and I love where the brand was positioned and it has a nice sweet spot in where consumers' minds are headed post-pandemic. Can you describe for someone listening that is not necessarily a fashion or apparel expert, where does Kid and Ace fit between all the other athleisure brands, athletic brands, yoga, etc.? Well, we are, we are not a yoga brand. We're not an athletic brand. We take tenets of athletic, technical apparel, technical fabrics. I kind of equate it to athleisure for movement, where a consumer or guest of ours could take our product. They could literally, if they like to, practice yoga, work out in our product, but at the same time, be able to go to work if they're working from the office or even wear it comfortably at home and then enjoy dinner in the evening without having to change. So I think our product speaks to, we call it elevated essentials, which are not basics, but it's uh, athleisure, it's comfort, it's fashionable. We're not trendy, we're on trend but it makes you and feel good. And where we find our strength is when a guest comes into our shop and they touch our fabric, there's an instant love for an appreciation for the fabric. And I've seen it firsthand watching our guests in the stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get back to, to the deal here. So you're having conversations over the holidays and then how does it progress? What's, the, what's that moment where you say, okay, we're, we're going to shake hands and do it? Well, I think it was a, just a natural progression of the deal conversations and a little bit of due diligence. And then uh, I got to a point when we issued the LOI and that's when I partnered with Joe and he came in, Joe Mimran, as you're familiar, pioneer in the retail and apparel industry. And he and I decided to partner in this endeavor with Frank Ricchetti. The three of us are partners in the, in the new journey. And uh, we issued our LOI, formal LOI to George and uh, we went through a period of time of consideration. We went back and forth and uh, we arrived at a, a deal and we just proceeded to conclude the deal through due diligence. And yeah. Joe Mimran is involved. Can you talk about like, how did he get to the table? Where, where does Joe Mimran fit into all this? Well, I've, I've, I've admired him from day one. During well, growing up, you watch him during Club Monaco and I was like, man, I'd like to meet the guy. I'd love to learn from the guy. And it's, again, you know what, like I said earlier, a bit of a dream come true of owning, you know, say, Kidney is a hot brand, but at the same time, be partnered with Joe. 
and uh, he's been great. The way we, our partnership with Frank, Joe, and I have been wonderful. I mean, the thing that we, we play up on our strength. Joe is very, as you know, very strong on product, design, creativity, marketing. I bring an element of operations. I'm also a marketer. And Frank's very strong in operations. The three of us bring a really good mix. You know, I kind of call it the triple threat. <laughs> so we're, we're very excited about the brand. And uh, each of us have our, our roles. Although I'm the CEO of Kidneys directly with the business and full accountability for the PL. But Joe is focused on the product development, product design. So we shifted the design of the product to Joe's design center based out of Toronto. And so can you describe... Well, I'll, I'll describe and then you tell me if I'm right here. So Joe and Frank are sort of like a power duo. Joe Mimran, of course, everyone knows from Club Monaco and Joe Fresh and all the other uh, businesses he's had. Frank, I, I've known for a little bit. Can you describe Frank's background and the strengths that, that he brings to the table? Yeah, well, he's a merchant. He's a merchant and an operator. was a senior executive at Sears for a number of years. And then he was a senior merchant at Loblaw. Mm. So as part of... Uh, you know, you know Joe's history and with how, like with the uh, like the home household goods as well as Joe Fresh. So very, they have a very close relationship. And then on top of that, Joe and, and Frank now own Tilly for the last several years, and they've really scaled the brand. Have done really exceptional product and new business channels for the brand. And I just love that because it's a very similar situation as Kit Nate's right? Reinventing that brand and adding additional categories. Well, we're here somewhat reinventing kidneys as well. So yeah, their experience is tremendously beneficial for our business. And I, and I lean on them as a, as a board member and as business advisors. Did you need a partner? Like, Were you looking for a partner and then Mimran and Frank were, were two people that came to the table? Or did they come to the table and you thought, hey, I could actually do this with a partner, even though I wasn't thinking of one? Well, John, it could have taken many different shapes, but uh, I welcome the two of them for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you find out about the business once you were inside? What, was there a big change or was it pretty much what you thought it was going to be? No, pretty much what I thought it was going to be. You know, They had a very healthy top-line business, very strong e-com business, of course, during the pandemic. Stores were closed. And then uh, the business reopened four stores. Uh, very strong top line sales in both online as well as in the stores. So that was really good. And that was another major attraction, knowing that there's an established fan base that love the brand. And then when you look at the data through online, many of the customers where Kitnace used to have stores in the US or the UK or Australia, those guests were still buying online. So that told us right off the bat that it's a very strong brand recognition and awareness and demand. And then you go below that. Obviously, there's um, you know, some tweaks that we had to initiate, such as product design fits, how we develop the collection and how we feature the collection. And because it was more of an online for the last five years, and then the four stores, the stores need a lot of love and attention. Kudos to the team that really through the pandemic and try to keep the stores running and be productive. And then we were highly productive. They just need a little bit more TLC, meaning visual merchandising. You know, they have very strong sales staff. The guest experience team is what we call them. But in terms of visual merchandising, fixtures, 
just the flow of product and then ultimately the product itself, we feel that there's a lot of opportunities to tweak that in both men's and women's. Right. So it sounds... So for the listener that's listening right now and thinking, okay, so you went ahead and bought this brand, it sounds like there's actually two financial considerations. On one hand, you're going to acquire a brand. And of course, it already has revenues and brand awareness and it's got assets and you're buying all that on day one. But then there's also a lot of capital expenditures because I feel like you come in and you have to fix a bunch of stuff. So were you thinking at the beginning, okay, here's how much we're going to need to acquire it and here's how much we're going to need to fix it? Or are the costs to fix it and the capital expenditures coming from cash flow? So that's actually not anything additional. Can you kind of explain how you think through that? Yeah, we feel that like the cash flow of the business, first of all, the top line sales were strong. The bottom line, year over year, progressively over the last five years, have been improving. Improving meaning with minimal losses. I think the ship was already starting to turn. The benefit that the three of us bring in into the business is just now accelerating that shift that it was on. It was on the right path. Therefore, business was generating positive cash. Yeah, there was a bit of a restructuring that needed to happen, removing some, whether it's IT costs, looking at distribution costs, you know, those things we could tweak and we've done that and uh, it's materialized with the business. But we, you know, of course, we have financing that is on top of that. But we, the company is strong on its own today on the, on the liquidity side. But we're planning for the future. Of course, we want to fix up the stores. We're planning now new stores that we're opening. By the end of this year, we'll have two new stores, one in Toronto, one in Calgary. We'll have a flagship store, another flagship store in Vancouver on West 4th, the spring of next year. So there is capital expenditure planning that's happening, and uh, we're well-equipped for the growth. How many stores in total? How many locations? So today we have four. By the end of this year, we'll have six, and we're aiming to end uh, 2024 at least a minimum of 10 stores across Canada. And... Okay, I've got a bunch of questions on that. I'm, I'm taking notes here because I've got so, so many questions as you're talking, David. But one more question on the deal before we leave that. Another thing I'm always curious about, so you're in these negotiations and the deal's done. So hopefully maybe you can say stuff now that you wouldn't have said when you're in the middle of a negotiations. But were you looking at the company before you acquired it thinking, oh, I could do this a lot better. Like I could fix this and this and we could save money here. Were those thoughts going through through your head the whole time? Yeah, I think I think any any entrepreneur who looks to acquire a business obviously have a um, you know have a gut feeling on the surface when you look at a business as to what could be fixed what is wrong and what's working right assuming is a dangerous one uh, you know making assumptions is dangerous but you know you have to to a certain degree but then actually once you get a hold of the books and speaking to management and speaking to the team either validates it or you uncover new opportunities but yes going into it john I could definitely see ABC. Here are the things that we should tweak. And, and quite frankly, where Joe and Frank and I work so well is we saw the exact same areas that needed to be fixed. And when we went through due diligence, we discovered, okay, it's valid, validated. And we also evaluate the size of the opportunity once we make those changes. Yeah. So that as an entrepreneur, you go through those phases and uh, it's very interesting to uncover. Like it, it's a, it's a case study and it's like taking my MBA again, you know, you've you run through, it's a case study and you run through all the SWOT analysis, et cetera. But the more I dug in, the more 
positive, like more optimism I had for the brand. That's great. And it's so cool that the three of you spotted the same opportunities because it validates it as an opportunity, but then it also shows you, oh, these people think like me. We can work well together. Well, exactly. I think the three of us, we also say it's a bit of fate because of who we know, what we've done in the past. And it's just, yeah, it's interesting. We, a lot of our thoughts are quite aligned, which is kind of rare in some cases. Of course. Yeah. So you've got four going to six locations. So in a retail business like this, and what's the footprint? I mean, do you have, are they very large stores or are they smaller stores? Well, we're, we're actually in design at the moment, meaning design of what the optimal store and footprint would look like. What I could say in the past, the brand is comfortably in a 25, 2600 square feet store based on our, we're in design, but what we're feeling and what we're looking at in terms of design is we're going to be comfortable in a 3,500 square feet store. And this would be a mix, of course, with men's, women's. But we're also looking, the reason why the footprint has increased is a couple points, visual merchandising. It's going to be a cleaner store for a guest to fully understand what our offering is. And there'll be a, a clear differentiation between understanding the male and the woman customer and how one navigates the store. And more importantly, I think it's adding additional categories. We're looking at adding underwear, accessories, and uh, in fact, Here's a little sneak peek. We just bought one of Chip's affiliated companies, which is in footwear. And we just bought that as well as, as part of our company. So we're going to have footwear offering as well. Nice. Did, did you yes. get that as a bonus or you had to full fork up for that one? No, we had to arm wrestle for that one too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Quick break so I can tell you about DemandScope. DemandScope is a performance marketing agency that helps you acquire new customers, keep them hooked, and scale profitably. Google ads, Instagram ads, TikTok ads, landing pages, email, and more. There are so many ways to get customers today, but if you're not doing it right, you'll end up blowing a whole bunch of money. And that's why I launched DemandScope. We're here to make sure you're doing it right. Get more customers today and scale effectively. Learn more at demandscope.co. That's demandscope.co. The reason I ask about the footprint is because I wonder if you were to start from scratch today, obviously you're, you're not starting from scratch, but you're starting with a new vision. Is the goal of the store in 2023 to drive online sales? Is it a showroom to drive online? Or is that not how you think about it? You want people to come into the store and, and enjoy the store experience for what it is. Yeah, I see it from a couple areas. I think there's a shift in the industry today where people are back out trying to enjoy life and get back out being active and, and, and social. So we do see that shift in consumers, especially when we look at foot traffic into our stores today. It doesn't tell us that they're hiding at home and, and necessarily shopping at home. So it's actually the reverse. We want the store to drive the e-com business. And quite frankly, it's really bridging the two because we do find a lot of our guests shop online and actually fulfill their purchase in the store or even buy online, pick up in the store where we have, although we only have four stores, but we see a tremendous amount of traffic coming in. So really trying to merge the two to create a, a better experience overall for our guests. And it's to drive both. We have a very strong online business and uh, our retail business is we're growing double digits, same store sales. Interesting. And so would you want, I mean, is there a 
preference that you have or you're, you're happy customers buying anywhere? Or is there a goal, hey, let's get them buying more in person or more online? For us, it's, it's agnostic, but I think our stores, like what I mentioned earlier, when a customer actually feels and touches and even tries on our fabrics, they fall in love with it. So having a store physically is very important as we move forward. And we want to build that relationship because in that ultimately that trust, because if they buy in store and they, they love the product and the fit and they know their sizing, buying online becomes really seamless to them, right? Then we built that trust. And, and of course, we like to see them no matter where they want to shop. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, there's lots of products you could buy. You could just look at it and make a purchase. But clothing is a very tactile. You want to feel it. You want to... But you put a t-shirt on, I could wear 10 different t-shirts and they feel 10 different ways, even though they're all the same t-shirt, essentially. So you really want to have that, that physical experience. I'm curious about the transition from executive to entrepreneur. Were you an entrepreneur before this at all? I looked at your resume, I couldn't really tell. It looks like, like, like you were a, a corporate executive. Did you have entrepreneurial genes? Yeah, John. I just feel that I've gone full circle. So I was, I was born and raised in a merchant family, a retail family here in Vancouver, and uh, learned a lot of the hard school of hard knocks through my dad and my mom. And uh, at the age of 18, right out of high school, I went in, I just leaped of faith, you know, a bit of naivety. I'd never been to Asia as well. And I just decided that I want to start, I want to go into fashion. Well, I had a couple of objectives. I want to go into fashion. I want to open my store. And I want to import a brand from Asia. And uh, I signed my first lease in Richmond, BC, before I even knew what I was going to sell. So I had six months by the time I signed it and that I needed to open. So I, I frantically just, you know, as a young, what, 18-year-old <laughs> guy, just, just going at it. And so as an entrepreneur, I brought a brand over from Asia and uh opened the stores in Toronto, as well as here in Vancouver, and just had a good 10-year run as an entrepreneur, eventually exit the business. What, what business it. was that? It was apparel. It's women's, men's, women's apparel. It was a brand called Theme. It was a trendy brand based out of Hong Kong. And that time, at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, kind of aging myself, you know, there's an influx of immigrants. So I figured, ah, why don't I bring something from their home to their new home. That was my idea as part of my retail journey. I was an entrepreneur. And frankly, when I exited the business, then I had an opportunity to join Esprit to take over the Canadian business. And every role that I've had that you've seen my resume, I do bring an entrepreneurial sort of spirit or flair to those roles. And I've always had an itch to truly get back into the game directly just that the corporate life has treated me quite well. And I was having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you went, you went from Esprit uh, VP and country manager for Canada, YM Group, which is a big chain of, of, of clothing companies, VP, director of marketing, e-commerce, a lot of things. What was that? At Nygaard? <laughs> At Nygaard, yep. <laughs> nice. And then Northwest. I'm, just, I'm going through your LinkedIn here. And then if I fast forward, VP of marketing at Mark's big retail player and then VP marketing. So you sort of went from, I feel like you're doing everything, your e-commerce, your merchandising, your marketing. What is your retail superpower or is it everything? I don't know. I, I just, uh, yeah, I did everything. And quite frankly, my career has not been 
like completely vertical. I went lateral, down, up, whatever. And quite frankly, I, I try to tell my kids the same thing. Do not pursue a job or career just based on title. Just pursue when you're young, pursue a career where you can continue to learn. And that's the path I did. I was a, a young guy started in my own business and being naive, but there was a lot of learnings that I, I wish I, I would have had before I even started as well. And that's why I went back to school. If you look at my, oh, I don't have a date there, <laughs> but I also went back to school in 2013 for my MBA. That's and, interesting. Uh, so you, yeah. you, you built a business for a decade, you were EVP at a big company. And then after that, you felt like you needed to get a formal education. Why, why did you do that? Well, there's two objectives. One is to, to fulfill my parents' wishes when I was a younger kid. At the same time, you know, I, I just wanted that more of a, a structured approach. I've, I've been a admirer of MBA, class, MBA schooling, uh, wanted to, to also get to know more people and get that education behind me as well. And uh, it's really served me well from a strategic, how I think, and it helps me validate some of the stuff I already tried and tested throughout my career. So it was an interesting one for sure. So it looks like around 2008, I want to say, you moved into a marketing role, your first official marketing role, at least in title. And then after that, at a couple of very big companies, Marks and Canadian Tire, you were... I mean, you're doing a lot, but it, it looked like you sort of went into marketing. Was marketing something that you discovered that you were good at later? Or did you always know that you were good at marketing? No, but you know what? Thinking about a brand, building a brand was always somewhere where I loved. Even back in my entrepreneur days, when I opened the stores, went back to Asia, I always looked for a purpose-driven brand. And, you know, I was an operator, et cetera, but brand marketing excites me. And I went through that period of time, it may have taken a long time to actually discover my passion. <laughs> but uh, and actually, I thought, ah, I'm actually doing okay in marketing. I could, I could build a really good career with this. And I've always been a, a champion of marketing ever since that marketing needs to have a seat at the table at the top end. It's not the lower end, lower funnel, tactical, just get signage out to the stores, etc. Like marketing is the voice of the customer that warrants a seat at the corporate table as part of strategy because we own the voice of the customer. And, and that's where I've been trying to build my career. And I, I believe that whether it's at Canadian Tire or at Northwest, those companies do see the value of marketing. And, uh, and marketing has many facets. And I actually believe marketing is the most exciting career. <laughs> I may be a bit biased, but it's ever-changing, whether it's uh, social media, content, there's no more print or minimal print. It's gone to digital. The swings, the excitement. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie if you kind of peel back the onion. But uh, it has to change. Be. Yeah, it changes a lot. And it, it, it's very exciting. And then around 2018 or 2020, depending on how you look at it, you add a brand new title, which is investor. And so how did the investment... Were you always a guy playing the markets and you kind of always had the investment bug or like how because making an investment especially one the size that you've made here with kid and ace how did you get into that side of the world john i've always had investments in smaller entities smaller brands and uh sort of sitting behind the scenes and uh this is getting a little bit personal but it's it's kind of interesting you know my wife has also got accustomed to my corporate life I think I wore, I wore her down enough that she has accepted me to, to now reinvest in a bigger way our capital in businesses 
and truly fulfill my entrepreneurial desire. So that's why in, in 2020, leaving Canadian Tire, joining with a private equity firm and acquiring Corite, which is a gemstone jewelry manufacturer, designer, distributor based out of Calgary. That was my, my foray into a larger investment into a, a company that I partly own. But I've got other investments into other businesses, whether it's skincare, sporting goods, watches. But yes, court was my significant investment. Of course, kidneys just trumps all. Right. Well, and, and you brought up a very good point there, especially if, if people are married or in relationships or, or have families, you've got to have buy-in because taking your career is one thing, but taking your capital is something else and, and starting to, to utilize it. Once you're already in that relationship, it's different if you started before, but this is a new thing. So I'm curious, and I, I know our listeners are going to love this part of the, of the podcast. What do you think makes you a good investor? And, and were you a good investor or, or did you have those big fails early on? No, I, I've had some fails too, but I think throughout my career in these different organizations and I went in Northwest was grocery. I wasn't always in apparel, but in all these different categories. I think going through the experience I had made me, I was hoping it makes me a lot smarter because I, I've seen how different roles, different processes, different organizations, how they work. It actually helped educate me and make me a much stronger entrepreneur, stronger business person, a stronger manager. So you're, yeah. you're a domain, if I had to, you tell me if I'm right here, you're a domain expert in retail, merchandising, whatever that category, whatever you want to call that category. You're a domain expert there and that makes you a smart investor or would you say you're a smart investor and you happen to be applying it to this category? I think both. Yeah, knowing the business, knowing the industry, I'm willing to take bigger bets as an investor. I've seen some decent returns, but at the same time, the bigger bets, the bigger investments, I like to take a much more active role. Yeah, I, I think I'm not bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say you're not bad at it. It looks, looks like you've done very well for yourself. What are some opportunities today? So if you didn't have this Rolodex and the capital and the connections, all that kind of stuff, if you were kind of starting out again today, putting your entrepreneur hat on, what opportunities are there for the entrepreneur starting up right now in, in, in retail? Oh my goodness. I would just say, you know, think of starting off. I mean, you can either go very strong in a specific category, just be a category killer, be an FBA seller on Amazon, etc. But I believe for longevity, the biggest one is to think of it as a brand, build a brand with purpose that's meaningful to consumers' lifestyle or a particular consumer profile or consumer target, but build a brand around it and tell a story as to why you, you exist. I don't have a defined one. It is hard, but fun to create a brand from scratch. But uh, as you already spoken, I've invested into brands that already existed. I just like to grow and accelerate the growth. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. It's fun to... And people get excited about building things from scratch. It's really hard though. It's always... The route that you've taken, even in your first company of bringing in a hot brand from Hong Kong or buying a brand that already has a customer base and revenues around it, it's a very different game because you're not starting from zero. You're starting from 10 to go to 100 versus zero to go to 10. And you, you figure that out early, which is, which is great. Yeah, starting... I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking now, if you, if you didn't get 
Kitnase, if that didn't happen, would you consider starting a brand today? Or that's just, that's not something that would flex the right muscles? You know what, John, I'm, I've been thinking about it constantly, right? Do I start something new or do I buy it? And, and uh, yeah, I, I think I'm at my agent stage in the game. I just fear, and also getting my, my spouse's buy-in. <laughs> I have to make, so I figured, you know, acquiring, scaling, an acquisition doesn't have to be a big one. It can just be one that just, just needs momentum, right? And that could be a startup. So actually, I look at Kidneys as virtually a startup today. At Corate, I look at it as a 40-year-old startup. So, I mean, you think about it that way. There's new verticals, new consumers to speak to, new product lines. I believe it's a startup. Yes, it has some momentum. I just love for me today is to, to take something and, and move it along much quicker. And the FBA businesses you were referencing, fulfilled by Amazon, those, the idea that you're just going to get into drop shipping or, or short circuit the process, those never end well. I mean, I don't have to name names. There have been so, so many well-documented failures. It's always about building and a I've brand. Done it. Yeah. And I've done it. I've done it. Yes. What, what's your experience been? It's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> um, it's like, it is a fad. It was um, finding suppliers overseas and having them certified, authenticated, and are they, do they deliver on time? And, and, and it's the, I'll probably get shot for this, but I mean, like, it's the worst customer experience that one could impose on your customers. Having a native, like you own the product, source the product, whether you bring it in or you store that source, but you need to own that source, that supply chain. And uh, I've not found or talked to others a, a successful dropship model from overseas. And and you you're exposed, you know, to way more than I am. I, I haven't either. And I, I can only imagine how many you've looked at. It's interesting because when I when that whole fad, the FBA, and I'm forgetting the names, but there were so many, you know, hundred million dollar venture backed companies that aren't so hot anymore. And when I would dive into these models, I would say, you guys are just, you're short-circuiting this and that, and you're hacking this, and you're trusting that this isn't going to break. And if this doesn't work, then the whole thing falls. And, and it just feels like such a, you're playing business on hard mode and you're making, you think you're making it easier. You're making it so much harder for yourself versus just having a brand and a supply chain that you invest in and you make customers happy and, and you, know, you, you build a great business that way. Right. Another partner of mine, he and I were, we started a company that became more of an aggregator of individual online stores. Some worked well, some didn't work. And uh, what we found is the ones that we control our product works well. The ones that are reliant on a supplier from whatever country and then to focus on the product and quality and ship it to our consumers, that didn't work. So it's ever changing. I'm sure that model is getting refined as we speak, but that's something that I've moved on and, and focused now on Kitnase. Yeah. yeah. If we're talking in a year from now, David, what's the story of Kitnase going to be? I'd like to achieve where Kitnase is present in more spots across the country, physical, as well as online to open up to across the borders beyond Canada. Right now, actually, with Kitnase, I've introduced Kitnase to the China and Asia market through online. And we're live streaming our product and being sold into China and other parts of Asia. And it's performed really well. Oh, wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm leveraging online as a vehicle to test and burn uh, other markets and, and delivering 
an experience in a different way, of course, being relevant to the market. Like live streaming in China is dominant. Live streaming in North America is slow to adopt. So I'd like to test and learn and try different avenues to speak to more people around the world. So one year from now, we want to be positioned kidneys as a, a desired, a strong desired of choice for their fashion or clothing needs. But at the same time, I want to position kidneys as a desired employer of choice because that's one of our challenges, right? Is to attract talent to our business. I don't think people realize in, in North America how big live streaming is as a sales channel in China and, and across Asia. Is that something... Do you think that's going to come here as strong or do you think that's just innate in the culture there? I think it's innate in the culture there. They're very used to their mobile phones and watching shows on phones, etc. North America, there's just a lot of options. It's just culture. Well, I'm excited to see what you've done. This I, I followed this acquisition from the beginning as soon as it was made public. And I thought, this is the dream team. You guys, if, if anybody could do this, it's you. And, uh, and I'm really excited. I think Kit and Ace over the next one, three, five years is going to be a dominant retailer. I'll, I'll say right now. Yeah, that's what we're aiming for. I mean, we're, I think the three of us are, are humble in our own ways. We definitely had our you know, school of hard knocks over the years, including Joe and Frank, etc. But uh, no, we're very excited about the brand and our guests in the stores online definitely tells us. What we're very excited about is launching our new product next spring under the guidance of uh, and eyes of Joe Mimret. And uh, I've seen that sneak peek of it and it, it looks fantastic. So we're Can very you share any that. any teasers to share? Well, it costs you, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no, stay tuned. Yeah. Spring 2024. Yes. Yes. Can't wait. David, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple or Spotify. Let's other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.